You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 17th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Coming up on today's programme, is the Myanmar military junta dropping its hardline attitude to opponents? We're really happy and excited to see our families and colleagues. And I don't know what to say. Um, We're very excited. Two Reuters journalists were released from jail in Myanmar today, part of an amnesty to celebrate Myanmar National Day, which will see almost 6,000 prisoners released. We'll ask why. Then, in the UK, the autumn statement has been released. Has the Chancellor managed to fill the black hole of £30 billion left by the ill-fated seven-week leadership of Liz Truss? We'll check in with our Latin Affairs correspondent and then Fernando will join us for the second part of his football-themed global countdown. What can we expect, Fernando? Hi, Georgina. It is indeed the World Cup of music. You should expect some Argentinian rap, Polish ballads and more. Thank you very much. Do stay tuned for that and much more right here on The Briefing with me, Georgina Godwin. Today, Myanmar celebrates its National Day and to mark the occasion, nearly 6,000 people, including four foreign nationals, will be released from jail by the military junta, who seized power in a coup on the 1st of February 2021 and then arrested anyone it suspected of opposing its rule. So does this indicate the regime is softening? Well, joining me to explore this is Ronan Lee, who's author of Myanmar's Rohingya Genocide, Identity, History and Hate Speech. Ronan, thanks for coming on The Brief. Why is Myanmar releasing so many prisoners? Well, it's clearly an attempt by the military junta to control the international narrative about what's going on in the country. They're concerned, I think, that uh, bodies like ASEAN, the regional body, may begin to take a tougher stance with them. And this is an attempt to appear to be slightly softer. But it's it's not a fundamental change or anything like that. This is a tactic. They've used it before. Gives you some sense. I mean, when you you look at the number of people that have been released, um, I'm I'm hearing it's much less than than the figure that's been been stated. And we'll know in the coming days exactly what it is, but it could be in the hundreds rather than the thousands. But that gives you some sense of the, the, the sheer numbers of people that have been arrested by this military junta. I mean, the figures from a couple of days ago were that there were 13,000 political prisoners in Myanmar. Uh, that, that, that's a that's a huge figure. And these are people who should not be in jail. They're not criminals. They're people who have politically opposed military rule within a country that had a democratic election in, in uh, 2020. And these are people who want their democracy back. So what the military often does is from time to time, usually associated with, with national holidays, they'll release some people as a sign of goodwill. But this is also another way of uh, creating terror within the community because some of those people we know will be very quickly rearrested. And the patterns that we've seen since the coup in 2021 are that people will be released and then some numbers of them will be very quickly uh, reincarcerated. They'll be taken back into jail. There was one instance during a previous release where the, the individual actually didn't make it back to their home before they'd been rearrested. So I wouldn't be expecting that this is a sign that there's a softening at all from the military junta. And state media, in fact, today suggests uh, that there's there's no change in their outlook. Uh, their, their view is exactly the same as it always was. 
Who are the foreign nationals who have been or are due to be released? Well, well Vicky Bowman is, is one of the highest profile among them, a former, uh, former British ambassador to, to Myanmar. She was uh, she was working in the country on eth ethical business practices. Was was what she was doing, advising companies on how to ethically engage with with Myanmar. She was arrested on a an immigration offence, allegedly a, a failure to tell the authorities that she'd stayed at a different address. I mean, it's a ridiculous it's a ridiculous thing to be jailed for. She was sentenced to a year in prison for that. Sean Turnell, uh, an advisor to Aung San Suu Kyi, was accused of, uh, in fact, was sentenced to three years in jail, accused of breaching the Official Secrets Act. Uh, I mean, no evidence presented to, um, to to these military courts about these crimes. This is, th these are trumped up charges in each case. This is about incarcerating people to make a political point and to in ensure that the, the military junta can can scare foreign countries. I mean, uh, Australia, where Sean Tannell was from, and the UK would have been very concerned about the, sa the safety and welfare of their, their nationals within Myanmar. And that will have affected their ability in, in their minds, in the minds of the governments of those countries, to take a tougher stance with the military junta. Well, um, that, that, that pressure's relieved now, and there's an opportunity for the UK and Australia to take a much tougher stance with this military junta now. Do we know the current status of Aung San Suu Kyi? Uh, well, she's been treated as a criminal. She's been sentenced to 26 years in jail. I mean, she's um, she, she's not uh, she's not a young woman. I mean, she's she's in her she's in her late 70s. Uh, 26 years in jail would would, uh, would 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 mean that she will never be able to play a, a political role within Myanmar again. And that's the military junta's objective. They want to portray her not as a political prisoner, but as a common criminal, and and to signal to the people of Myanmar that they shouldn't expect Aung San to be a part of their politics in the future. But the, the people support Aung San Suu Kyi. She's still wildly popular within Myanmar and, and the people will not see her as a criminal simply because a military junta that is, is as brutal as they are economically incompetent uh, says those things about her. Now, as you say, the military junta is really terrifying people by the idea of them being locked up. Does that constrain people in terms of protests? There have been protests. Are those ongoing? Uh, well, resistance is ongoing, and um, the, the the large public protests that we saw in the in the days and weeks uh, following the coup in 2021, well, they can't for practical reasons they can't happen now. Uh, the military's approach to any protest is that they shoot to kill. So peaceful protesters are met with uh, are met with with incredibly violent force. Uh, one one example from a protest uh, in 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 recent times was that the military simply drove a truck at at high speed at full speed into the protesting people. So it's much more difficult for protests to occur. But there is significant resistance within the country. Um, the, the public service is not really functioning. The transport system in the country is not really functioning in any meaningful way. And that there are people taking on the military uh, with, uh, with with violence now. There's, there's, there's a People's Defence Force, which is is regarding itself as, a, as, a, as an independence army, as the army that's fighting to to take the country back from the military junta that's, that's in control. I mean, it's a civil war. And is there any indication that they might succeed? Well, the, the reality is two years into this now, and the military has not been able to embed its rule. 
Uh, they're not in control of the country beyond uh, beyond the major urban centres. Uh, how the military is having some success is that they still retain air superiority. Uh, they can they can bomb people from planes and from and from helicopters, and and that's really their key advantage over the people who over those who are supporting democracy. And, and that means that there's a pretty there's a pretty simple answer here for uh, the foreign community if they want to they want to see regime change in Myanmar, uh, stop the aviation fuel been made available to the Myanmar military junta because as we in fact we've seen in recent weeks that they they outrageously uh, uh, attacked people at a, at a concert I mean, these are civilians attacked at a concert 80 people dead uh, shot at from from um, from the air and and the simple thing that that the international community can do is take away the air superiority from the Myanmar junta and, and sanction aviation fuel they should not be able to buy fuel to put planes in the air to to bomb and shoot at civilians. Ronan, thank you very much indeed. That was Ronan Lee. Now, here's Monocle's Marcus Hippie with the day's other news stories. Thanks, Georgina. Russia and Ukraine have agreed to extend an agreement to allow grain exports from Ukrainian ports through a safe corridor in the Black Sea. The deal was set to expire on Saturday and has now been extended by four months. Nearly 11 million tonnes of grain and foodstuffs have so far been exported under the agreement. Republicans are projected to win a majority in the U.S. House of Representatives with 218 seats secured in the midterm elections. The victory creates a divided government as President Joe Biden's Democratic Party holds control of the Senate. And North Korea fired a ballistic missile earlier today, the latest in a record number of tests this year. In a statement, the country's foreign minister warned of fierce military responses to U.S. efforts to boost its security presence with its allies in the region. Those are the day's headlines. Now back to you, Georgina. Thanks, Marcus. Britain's new Chancellor of the Exchequer, Jeremy Hunt, has released the Autumn Statement. He's had to hit the ground running after he took over from Kwasi Kwarteng, who served under former Prime Minister Liz Truss. Together, their disastrous mini-budget cost the country a staggering £30 billion, doubling the sum that the Treasury says will have to be raised in a huge programme of tax rises and spending cuts. Well, Vicky Price is an economist and former joint head of the UK's government's economic service. Vicky, thanks for joining us on a very busy day. What are your first impressions of this statement? Does it make the UK seem more responsible? Well, it does, because uh, what um, Jeremy Hunt has announced is uh, both tax increases um, and also some public spending cuts over a period of time. But the interesting thing is that um, there is a lot of emphasis on ensuring that the government still continues to support the economy over the next couple of years, with some of those spending cuts coming later, uh, possibly after the next election. Uh, and also the time over which they're supposed to be meeting some of their fiscal um, rules, if you like, uh, which include reducing the deficit uh, in on a yearly basis to below 3%. Uh, of GDP and also reducing the debt to GDP ratio, uh, that is really over a five-year period, which of course takes you again past a likely general election, which is meant to happen in a couple of years' time. So the pain seems to come a lot later, 
But those who will be paying more tax are going to be hit much earlier because a lot of the tax increases are happening across the board in the sense that not really the basic rate of income tax is going up or even the higher rate of income tax until you hit the, the highest level where uh, what you've got is thresholds going down. You start paying the highest 45p rate when you start earning just over £125,000 instead of £150,000. But earlier on, further down the pay scale, where everyone who either you know, pays the basic rate or the higher one, which is 40%, so 20 for the basic, 40% for the highest, start paying that uh, probably a little bit earlier in real terms because they will have their thresholds frozen, which means that any pay rises that they get, uh, they will get pushed much faster into paying either the basic rate when they were paying no tax before or the higher rate. So that way, I think they square the circle, if you like. In addition to that, of course, you have the corporation tax increases, which are happening anyway as of next April. So corporation tax rate going up, as had been intended, from 19% to 25%, something that the previous uh, government under Liz Truss was going to leave unchanged at 19%. And is is this being done in order to reverse the damage done by Truss and Kwarteng? Is it down to them? To a considerable extent, yes, I think you need to keep the capital markets satisfied because, of course, they went on strike, if you like, when they saw this 45 billion of extra unfunded tax cuts appear suddenly on September 23rd. And then, of course, the Bank of England, if you remember, had to intervene uh, quite aggressively and start buying uh, bonds in the secondary market just to keep yields down because, of course, immediately mortgage rates were going up and and, and there was a lot of panic also about what it would all mean for pension funds. But yes, a lot of that has already been announced that it was being reversed. So the calculations are that that reversal alone of most of those tax cuts that were announced in that budget um, would bring in an extra 35 billion. So people who've been looking at what gap um, this has left, we're saying, well, there's another 10 and that's all. But in reality, because, of course, there are extra requirements for the National Health Service, um, we know the problems that are there right now. Uh, there is no doubt that in addition to the electricity price freeze, which costs quite a lot of money for the government, they needed to raise more in the form of tax increases. And that's basically what we're seeing announced. And the markets, we are assuming because they already know most of this and have been appearing to be quite relaxed about it, will probably be quite happy with what they hear today. And does this also represent a U-turn on many Tory policies over their last 12 years in power? Well, yes. I mean, tax uh, as a percentage of GDP, of course, has been going up. Uh, And if you look at government revenues, we're talking about revenues of something like, depending on how you calculate it, 36 to 39 percent. Uh, of GDP, which is something, of course, which uh, is, is is not very conservative policy, if you like. And the role of the state is also considerably greater. If you look at before this announcement, what the, the government spending was as a percentage of GDP, we were talking about something like 44 to 45%. So quite high, uh, which again, you would imagine this is a conservative government, which doesn't believe in the role of the state being very important and one which believes in low taxes. Uh, we're not there at all at this stage. Uh, so bottom line, we're all going to be a lot poorer. Uh, yes, uh, in in the short term. But what is being promised is some honey later on. Um, so I'm suspecting that what they're trying to do now is is have the burden up front 
in terms of tax rises and then seeing what can be done to relieve the situation later. And I would imagine that politically they'll need to do that. Vicky, thank you very much indeed. That was Vicky Price and you're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Sit down with a host of inspiring designers and architects featured in Monocle's November issue. They share their thoughts on bright ideas, on everything from the future of the office to community-built public design. It's being really clear that we can create the kind of infrastructure to make people feel like, I want to stay here, I want to stay invested here. In the affairs pages, we visit the people and places weaning Europe off fossil fuels, from a booming solar industry in Morocco to an off-grid village in Germany. Elsewhere, it's lights, camera, action in Mexico, where the global streaming wars are heating up and full steam ahead at the world's largest rail fair in Berlin. Order your copy of Monocle's November issue today or subscribe to get instant access online. Back with the briefing on Monocle 24, and we're heading over to Buenos Aires to join our Latin American affairs correspondent, Lucinda Elliott. Lucinda, it seems that President Fernandez of Argentina was the only Latin American leader to attend the G Summit this week. Why was that? Yes, so Brazil's outgoing Bolsonaro and AMLO of Mexico clearly had other priorities. Um, Fernandez was actually there to try and secure some funding from Beijing. Uh, This is part of a currency swap with China that Argentina has, and it will reportedly receive $5 billion, which should help prop up some of the central bank's dwindling currency reserves. What got more attention here in Argentina was actually uh, President Fernandez's health. Um, He almost didn't make the meeting um, due to a terrible bout of gastritis, and he was attended to in, in hospital in Bali and then has been told to to rest um, from travel by his senior doctor. No surprises, really, that he's feeling rather stressed, given inflation is soaring in Argentina, poverty is worsening, and, and all hopes really are on the national football team to win the World Cup. Uh, now, he did get £5 billion from Beijing, though. Yes, exactly. So this is part, as I said, of the currency swap with China. He secured that $5 billion sum, which should, as I say, help with some of the central bank's dwindling reserves, um, as the economic situation is really not looking very great at the minute. Well, let's talk about that economic situation. Uh, I mean, they, they announced the inflation uh, the results this week. Uh, t- tell us more. Yeah, so Argentina has the highest annual inflation rate in the G20. It surpassed Turkey with 88% recorded in the 12 months to October, and analysts predict it could go higher still, um, perhaps moving beyond 100% by the end of this year. And prices are just hugely distorted. I mean, to give listeners some idea, a monthly gas bill for a two-bedroom flat costs barely one US dollar at the unofficial exchange rate. I mean, you can't even buy a small bouquet of flowers for that. Um, This is because gas and utilities and then to a lesser extent transport um, is heavily subsidised. And then on the other hand, you have certain foods or particularly medicines whose values are doubling or tripling in some cases with items becoming almost entirely unaffordable for many. So there are these tremendous distortions and the government simply can't afford these subsidies. It doesn't have access to international markets for external financing. And so the central bank is printing pesos at such a rate. And that's why we see, uh, you know, inflation is where it is. And, and so what could they be doing to bring it down? 
Well, the Peronist government, they did, it has an unveiled, unveiled plans for yet another freeze on the price of some, I think it's 1,500 products from things like shampoo to baking soda. Um, they did something very similar before Christmas last year. And I think again, sort of halfway through the year. And this scheme hasn't worked. Um, another measure that they've thought up is to create more favorable exchange rates, uh, depending on the region or the industry in the hope that some of these producers will sell their goods abroad and that the central bank will be able to receive some dollars. Um, but the central issue really is Argentina doesn't have enough dollars to meet demand and a sentiment around the value of the local peso falls, that in turn means that there are more people who want dollars, which are considered a safer way you know, to, to save their earnings and the price of the peso collapses and the inflationary pressure builds. And so this is not going to stop without really a solid economic plan and a return of confidence. Mm. Now, you mentioned the World Cup and where you are in Buenos Aires, there's a real build-up towards it. But are fans critical of the hosts this year? Yes, yeah, so Georgina, unlike when I was in England recently, where there's a sort of there, were, there wasn't really much of much excitement building here, you know, Argentina is one of the teams tipped to win. But it's also for the first time taking place during the Southern Hemisphere summer. It will also be their footballing hero Messi's last World Cup. And so it drinks the other evening. People were talking about plans for where to watch it, um, obviously, given the time difference with Qatar, you know, and, and, and you know, whether you're going to have an asado or a barbecue or whatever. But broadly, there's been very little discussion about the host's human rights record, probably in part because Argentina itself is suffering, as I say, from high levels of inflation and poverty. And there's a lot of kind of doom and gloom. And there's a feeling like in many previous games that this is a way to boost the public mood and uh, rally together over over a barbecue and probably probably skip school. <laughs> <laughs> Lucinda, thank you very much indeed. That's Lucinda Elliott there. And you're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Well, we'll continue on a football theme now because Fernando is joining me uh, for his global countdown and it is the second part of his special World Cup countdown. Uh, Fernando, first recap, how does this work? Because you did try and explain some <laughs> extremely complicated rules to me and in the end I just gave up. And, and I have to do all the maths. <laughs> I have a very tough job here, Georgina. Uh, so basically I'm mimicking uh, the World Cup groups. Uh, as you know, I have a feeling perhaps you might not be the biggest World Cup fan but each group has four countries in it. Last week, we started with groups A and B. Um, you know, I was explaining to Emma that I would choose one song from each group and they will go through the semifinals. And the rules are the following. I look at the number one song in the country. It needs to be from a local artist. If the local artist is not a number one, I go for number two until I find uh, a local artist. So... Last week, the Netherlands and Iran went through the next round with a very powerful song, a, very, a protest song. And today we're looking at group C and D. All I can say, it's going to be very diverse. And I wonder who, which one you're going to like. And of course, at the end of the segment, I'll say which one is going to the next round. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> a lot of rules here. Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to nod. <laughs> just enjoy. Just surf the, the wave. Yeah. So what are we hearing first? We are actually heading to Argentina. Funnily enough, we just heard there from Lucinda. And it, it is true, uh, Georgina, Argentina, they are fanatic for the World Cup, perhaps even more so than Brazil. 
But what is the number one song in their charts? I see there is a female rapper. Her name is Lahoaki, and that just shows how hip hop is perhaps one of the most important genres in Argentina at the moment. A lot of female rappers as well. Uh, we're gonna have a, a listen to this track by Lahoaki. It's called Dos Besitos, Two Little Kisses. Let's have a listen. So you can see, Georgina, I said Argentinian rap. I mean, it's it's their very own hip-hop, right? There are different beats. There's some kind of local elements from uh, local Argentinian music as well. I thought it was quite enjoyable, that track. Next, we're going to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, and we have one of the biggest Saudi pop stars, if I may say. His name's Abdul Majid Abdallah. And he actually returned to the stage this year. I think he had a little break of five years. But he's huge in the Middle East. I mean, he's definitely a pop star. He's 60 years old as well, and he's still doing very well. He just released a new album. And the track we're going to hear is a very beautiful ballad called Welcome to My Soul by Abdul Majid Abdallah. <laughs> Oh, I rather like that. It's quite nice, right? I said a ballad, but there's something quite central to it as mm. well. A mm. uh, very good track from Saudi Arabia. We're heading to Mexico now as well. And it's interesting, Georgina, this song, there's not many kind of Mexican tracks that go to the top 10 in the uh, top 100 in the US. But this song did reach that. Uh, they are Grupo Frontera. They have a, a Mexican origin, but they're based in Texas. Of course, there's a huge connection there. It's a romantic track. Of course, they're wearing those, those hats, you know. It, it's a proper ballad. Perhaps you should dance close to someone you love. <laughs> uh, maybe. Uh, the song is called No Se Va, Don't Go by Grupo Frontera. I find it quite simple and raw, but clearly it hits a mark with with Mexicans. It's a nice track. It became is. a viral sensation. Uh, now, this is the last one in Group C, and it's Poland. It's Poland. I was surprised, actually, the number one, because the Polish, they love electronic music. But the number one is very much not electronic. She's kind of their own indie pop queen uh, there in Poland. It's a very beautiful ballad about smiling and hugging. We are different like two drops of pure water. I don't know if drops of water are different, but yeah, according to her lyrics, it is. <laughs> Let's have a listen to Sana with Nothing Twice. Yeah. 
You know, that reminds me of that Swedish group First Aid Kit a bit. Oh, yes. Um, it's got that sort of slight country twang going on. Very gentle, right? Yeah. Uh, so very different. I mean, from Argentinian rap to Polish ballads, it's, it's kind of a strong group. It would be difficult to choose. But let's, shall we go to Group B now? Let's. It's France. It's a very exciting music market. Uh, and, and again, if you look at the French charts, it's, it's mainly French artists, which I think is remarkable. And hip-hop is also huge in France. Uh, the number one, he's one of the biggest names in hip-hop in France. But this track is a little bit more melodic than usual. And he said that in an interview. He doesn't want just the rap fans to enjoy his music. He wants also pop fans, rock fans. Uh, let's have a listen. This is Gazo with Die. Je crois que je t'évite alors que je maille. Elle veut savoir je suis dans quel pays. Dis où tu veux qu'on se voie. Et je te donnerai ce que tu veux de moi. Jusqu'à ce que je taille. Mission, il va falloir que j'y aille. Love that. I like the melody actually at the end. A really great track. And be ready for Australia, Georgina. Don't start crying just now, okay? Because actually there is positive stories in the end. His name is Dean Lewis. He's an Australian singer-songwriter. The song is called How Do I Say Goodbye? It was dedicated to his father, which was diagnosed with cancer. But it's interesting. When you see the video, it's a very emotional one. You think the worst might have happened. But thankfully, his father entered in remission. And I think he's well actually but he said that every time he sings the song he still thinks about his father so it's a beautiful track uh, let's have a listen Ding Lewis how do I say goodbye so how do I say goodbye to someone who's been with me for my whole damn life you gave me my name and the color of your eyes see your face when I look at mine we're very sad here, but it's all, well, beautiful track, nevertheless. It is very sad. I, I don't want to make you sad, Georgina. <laughs> but don't worry, the next track I think is a little bit more upbeat. And again, hip-hop is the genre of the moment all around the world. But again, with a lot of differences, because we're heading to Denmark. Uh, Gilly is one of the biggest names in Danish rap. But with his new album that's coming out soon, he's definitely one to kind of broaden out again, same as Gazo, but perhaps a little bit more than Gazo, because this song is actually very poppy. There are a lot of piano loops and kind of, you know, it's very upbeat. Uh, and he invited another Danish singer to sing with him, Savels. Uh, so let's have a listen to The World Awakens, representing Denmark. <laughs> pick up on something you said there about hip-hop you were saying it's really popular all over the world and I just did an interview with Christopher Riley who's written a book about hip-hop and he really explains why that is and how mm. it's it's this kind of political movement that, that a whole kind of group of people have been oppressed really that it's very difficult to get those 
those um, those lives out in front of everybody else. They're they're talking about a, a, um, a circumstances that that not everybody lives. And I just anyway, if people are interested, they can listen to it on 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 Monocle Reads with Christopher Riley. That's fantastic. I'll definitely do that, Georgina, because it's true. It's a, it's a global phenomenon. It's Argentina. It's Denmark. It's France. It is, and actually, it is also our next country, Tunisia. Uh, he's a big name in the Tunisian music scene. Uh, his name is Samara. The track is Galbi. It's our last track for today. Let's have a listen. <laughs> And again, very different. Hip-hop, cannot, they are, it's not all the same. You heard the Argentinian one with a lot of kind of Latin American rhythms. Mm. This one clearly is a more of a Magrab vibe as well. So yeah, it's, it is hip-hop, but very different from country to country. So who are your winners? Okay, the winners are, they're very valid winners here, but I have to choose only one from each group. From group C, Argentina will go through. I think the rise of female hip-hop is a very important and fun track. Uh, they're good in football and good in music as well. From group D, that was a tough one, I have to say. I was a little bit divided, but I think for the innovation and trying to look for different audiences, the prize goes to Denmark uh, with Gilly. Uh, so those are the winners. Argentina and Denmark, they will join the Netherlands and run in the future semi-finals here on the Global Countdown. So we're going to go all the way through to the ultimate winner. Right? Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you very much indeed. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing, which was produced by Marcus Hippie. Our researcher was Emily Sands and our studio manager was Callum McLean. And I'll be back on The Briefing at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Goodbye and thanks for listening. 